How think you that you obey Christ's commandments when you spend your time collecting interest, piling up loans, buying slaves like livestock, and merging business with business? And that is not all. Upon all this you heap injustice, taking possession of the lands and the houses and multiplying poverty and hunger. What a powerful quote. Let's learn about and let's dig into and figure out more about the man who said it. Well, welcome to the Church History Podcast. I know it's been a little bit of time, but I'm so glad to be talking to you about church history, history in general. Love it. It's been a little, it's been a little while, but I would love to hear from you. You can always email us at church.ahistory at gmail.com. That's church.ahistory at gmail.com. Every email that comes in, I read it. I don't always answer all of them. I have a few friends of mine that help with some of the questions that come in that may take me a little bit longer to uh, formulate an answer. We hit a milestone, guys. We hit a milestone in the past month. We hit a milestone of over 4,000 downloads just in six months of the Church History Podcast. And before we start and we talk about our main event, the guy we're going to talk about this evening. I want to tell you that I thank you so much for listening to the podcast, for sharing the podcast, for um, just in general being open and interested in hearing what I have to say. Without you guys doing those things, there's no way we would hit such a momentous milestone in just six months. And I've been doing the podcast about a year, so you can double that, and or not quite double that, but you can look at the numbers and say, um, you can kind of see how many um, downloads we've had over the course of a year. And I am excited to go into year uh, number two here um, and getting into more of I just have a never-ending list of uh, um, interesting people that I want to talk about and interesting events. Um, I will tell you this. I'm currently pastoring a church. Um, The church is called Church, and if you want to look it up online, the website is visitthechurch.com. Visitthechurch.com. We'll have some preaching and teaching from our church and more information about the church I'm pastoring. But because of that, when I started this podcast, that was not exactly something that I was doing. Um, My wife and I were called into planting this church, starting this church, and November 14th, the church opened its doors for the first time to the community. And with that, there's relationship building and pastoring and studying for sermons and stuff like that that have made it difficult to pump out these church history podcasts as quick as I would like them to be. Um, But with that said, um, I'm not going to stop doing this, okay? This is not just a passion of mine. I also see it as a a calling. And um, I think one of the things that would be great, um, like I said, I have a long list of people, but 
and things I want to talk about. But if you want to email us again at church ahistory at gmail.com church.ahistory at gmail.com um, let us know what you want to know more about I think it would be cool to have um, a couple suggestions over the course of uh, 2022 where I hear of that maybe this is a person you want to know more about and then kind of on you know in a, in a way of serving you to go and do research on that individual um, so that I can bring everything I know. And what I also want to do in 2022 is um, I want to do a better job of not just bringing you the information that I know where I'm just kind of riffing off lectures that I've had and those types of things um, in the books I've read on the topic, I also want to start building up a reading list on our on the podcast website so we start building out, out a library of great books that are great books for people to go to if they're interested in church history. And of course there's like there's different levels of that. You can go a deep dive into something that's just really intense and thick and then there's other church history um, books that kind of lay it out just in a one volume or two in a very readable way um, that will maybe kind of get you going down that path. I want you to be excited about church history. Church history obviously is not as important as biblical um, history, is, is, is the Bible, the Gospels, the letters, the Old Testament. I understand that, but I do think it's important that as Christians we understand, if you're not a Christian, you get this as well, that it's not just Jesus um, at the end of the Gospels. Kai just went to heaven, ascended, and then told his apostles to go make disciples. And there was one generation um, that we read about in the book of Acts, and then there was Paul and the letters, um, and then there's just nothing until now. Um, we're sitting on 1,000 plus, 1,500 years plus, close to 2,000 years. I hate to say just 2,000 years because it wasn't exactly 2,000 years. Um, I don't know if you know this, but there was never an actual year zero. You ever thought about that? There actually wasn't. Look it up. There was not ever. You will not find that there was. So we don't know exactly, exactly how many years. We know there's a lot of time that the church has developed and there have been people that have, you know, through the power of God, through the Spirit, Holy Spirit, have moved the church forward and we want to know about them as well. So tonight we are going to start part one of a two-part podcast about John Chrysostom. John Chrysostom. Now, he is an extremely interesting character. He's interesting from his youth all the way up till he takes the helm as the bishop of Constantinople, which was an incredibly and powerful city. We're going to get into all that stuff. But the thing that drives me to talk about John is his passion to take what the church first and then the laity, that's the name of people who are not pastors or bishops or in leadership within the church, still could be called that. He wanted to remind them of what it meant to be the church. And he specifically wanted to remind them that you cannot chase down wealth and still make the gospel the most important thing. And he shook things up. 
he shook things up. And I think he's so interesting because as we look at his life, we'll see that if we put him in many churches now, kind of regardless of where they are, and he preached his message hard about um, how he felt, based on Scripture, the church should view earthly possessions as nothing, he would push buttons and he would make people upset, especially in our society. American society is about get more, faster, better, all those things. And a lot of times that's we see that in our churches, in our pastors, in the people that are there. And we don't really have this push of not poverty, but this push of how we should see things of this world. And he's going to do that. Now, it was crazy. A um, hundred years after his death, a hundred years after his death, John of Constantinople, that was his name, okay? He was given that name, just like Augustine of Hippo. He was called Augustine of Hippo because he was the bishop of Hippo. That was kind of like the main post he held. Well, John, um, the main post he held was Constantinople, so he was called John of Constantinople. But generations that would read what he wrote gave him the name. So it's not a last name. Chrysostom is not a last name. It's, it's a title. And what it means is the golden mouth. The golden mouth, that's what it means. Can you imagine if 100 years after you have, um, after you have been dead and gone, um, people that read your stuff says, say to you, the, you said the most amazing things, the most powerful things that were literally going to give you the name golden mouth. The things that came out of your mouth were a prize, were like a jewel, were like gold. They were valuable. And this was in a time when there were great, great preachers like Ambrose of Milan, and I could give you a huge list. So for him to have this title bestowed upon him was a really, really big deal. But not only that, um, the pulpit where he preached was not just a place where he would just deliver these uh, brilliant pieces of oratory. Um, it rather, the, it was the verbal expression of his entire life, his battlefield against the powers of evil, an unavoidable calling that eventually led to exile and to death itself. And that's what I want to talk about. That's why this guy's so interesting. So let's look at his life a little bit, the beginnings of his life, until he gets to Constantinople tonight, and then, then we'll talk more about what happens you know, after Constantinople and into his, his death, which all of it is just meaningful and important. Now, he was a monk. Above all, he was a monk. And what I mean by that is um, the way he saw life was how a monk would see life, which was very um, singular. It was dimensional, singular, a singular dimension towards um, this uh, monastic uh, focus of, of uh, repentance, gospel, scripture reading, that's it. In fact, there were monks at the time that were, people would say, you're, you're so spiritual, you're not actually, um, you don't care about what's going on in the world. Now, what's going to be interesting about him is he's a monk at heart. He's a monk. That's just who he is, very serious about his faith, very serious about what he's all about. But he just naturally just obsessively to some degree, just kind of looks out at the world world around him. And God gives him this very uh, 
this very immersive kind of view of culture and how to diagnose it and then how to speak to it. Now, it's interesting is before becoming a monk, he was a lawyer. Now, uh, John Calvin was also trained to be a lawyer. We actually have, uh, which is very, very far in the future compared to where we're at with, uh, with, with John here. Um, but it's interesting that multiple church um, apologetics, uh, peop- the guys that created that, the, the, a lot of, uh, um, we have multiple people that have a background in law. Now, he was trained in Antioch, which is where he was from. And it was said to his teacher, I thought this was interesting, that when someone asked the old teacher who should succeed him, he responded, John. So they're, the, the people are asking the teacher of uh, John, John Chrysostom, um, they're asking his teacher, who should replace you, all right? Who should replace the teacher? And he says, John should, so John should replace him, um, but the Christians have laid claim on him. I love that. I love that. Who, who should take your job as teaching other lawyers? Well, it's this John guy, but unfortunately, the Christians have already claimed him, which actually what we know scripturally means that God has laid his hand on him, and, uh, and we'll see that in, in a big way. Uh, John's mother was a fervent Christian, and she loved John with a deep and, I would say, possessive-type love. We'll see that kind of in all the way into his teachings, honestly, later in, in part two. But his mom, she, she loved him, but she was possessive. I don't know if you know any moms that are like that. Just, he's my boy. That's kind of what we're seeing here. Um, and she was quite happy when her lawyer son, and then 20 years of age, asked that his name be added to the list of those training for baptism. We've talked about this before. Um, in For hundreds of years, for you to be um, baptized, what had to happen is you had to go through, um, you can call it catechisms, you can call it almost like a Sunday school class. Um, that might be a stretch to call it that, but the church would make sure that, that, that uh, you knew exactly what you were doing. So three years later, okay, so he's like, it's almost like a college degree to, be, to get baptized. When he completed the time of preparation that was required, he was baptized by the Bishop of Antioch at that time. Um, and once again, his mother rejoiced. <laughs> but when she told her, but when he told her that he intended to withdraw um, from the city and follow the monastic way, she was adamant. God's adamant and made him promise that he would never leave as long as she lived. So classic possessive mom, okay? If you do what she wants, she's excited. If you don't do what she wants, she's going to turn on you like a dime. Um, and this is what happens. He, he decides to be baptized. She's a Christian, so she's super excited. Um, he spends three years plus getting ready to be baptized, and um, his mom is super, super pumped. He gets baptized, and then he says that uh, um, what he's going to do, um, what he's going to do is he is going to follow the monastic way. Now, what that means is he's going, instead of engaging with the church, um, whatever, in, engaging with law, the church, 
um, pastoring people. He, the monastic way at this time was he's going to take his his scripture. He's going to go find some monastic community out in the wilderness, out in the the sticks, out in the desert, and he's just going to spend his life just meditating on the word and not even interacting with other people. And his mom said, "Oh no, 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 that's not no." No, that's not what we're doing. It's great you want to be baptized. It's great you want to be a Christian, but you will be here interacting with everybody. You're not going off to some crazy cultish situation. Uh, that's not what's happening. She said to him, you will not do this um, as long as I live. It may be well that some of these experiences are reflected in his later sermons on topics such as marriage and family. He's going to talk about this stuff. And, and almost like you'll see there's some unhealth that we don't know about, but we can read between the lines that relationship with mom is not necessarily um, a good one. So what he did was he kind of tried to solve the tension between um, a vocation or a life in a monastic way and his mother's possessiveness. Um, and that was to do this thing that was really funny. So basically, he says, okay, so if I leave, my mom's going to freak out, okay? So he, uh, um, I can't just go be a, a monk where I just kind of isolate myself and just focus on Scripture. She wants me to stay by her, so, um, but, but I, so I should probably do that too. So he says, this is what he says, I'm going to turn our house into a monastery. Oh, this is so great. So great. Um, can you imagine? Can you imagine if uh, um, you, uh, your parents said to you, let's say, um, you say you want to go off and, and you want to uh, do this thing. Like, let's, you know, just do this thing that's completely different. You're going to move away and all this, and, and you're going to be a part of this. Maybe you're going to be a part of this co company on the other side of the United States. And, and they're like, no, 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 you're not going out to California to be a part of this company, to start this company. It's not going to happen. You're going to stay here. And out of respect, you say, okay, I'll stay here. But you also turn the house into a company, and you move all of these people that you're starting the company with 20 of them into the house and say okay you know two birds with one stone i love that he does that he he solves the tension by in some ways creating more tension um, so he invited like-minded friends and after his mother's death so he literally waited till she died which i think is also kind of funny he joined the monks in the syrian mountains so he waits till she dies um, until she dies he has this um, you know, he's had, cause he kind of creates his own little monastery and he says, I need to go out where I'm called to be. So his mom dies, he goes to the Syrian mountains and he then spent four years learning the discipline of the monastic life and two more practicing it and, and, and kind of figuring out what it means to be in complete solitude, just you and the scripture. Um, and, and later he'd actually admit um, that some such a life was not the best kind of training for um, the task of a pastor or a shepherd. This is actually what he says. So he actually goes back and he says, you know, when he begins actually pastoring people uh, as a bishop, caring for people, preaching, so interacting with a lot of people in the public and not just 
isolated. He, he decides that, you know, going off by yourself and, and, and not interacting with society, that might not be the best way to create um, experiences that you can um, then reach other people. So he says this, he says, many who have gone from the monastic retreat to the active life of a priest or a bishop are completely un- unable to face the difficulties of their new situation. And that's that's a thing. I mean, that's the thing now. Um, I've been to churches before where the pastor seems very accessible. It seems like he, he loves his people and he's he genuinely wants to be a part of the community. And I've been to other churches where it kind of feels as though the pastor ascends from on high, delivers a message, and then disappears and expects that to be ministry. And what we'll find here is John is telling us, no, that's not you can't pastor like that. So those of you who are listening who are pastors, um, your job is not simply to just bring a sermon. You have to love the people. Um, and honestly, if you think about the commands from Jesus, you know, Jesus goes in Matthew 28, Jesus ascends into heaven. He says, go and make disciples. And how are you supposed to do that if you gather two of your friends and you go to the Syrian mountains and you spend years reading the Bible and not interacting with anyone else? Okay, so this actually is something that's going to affect all the way up to Martin Luther. Again, I've talked to him, talked about him one other time this evening. You know, Martin Luther's going to be challenged with that too. He's like, he's going to see, see that like the interaction of just just looking inward and making, trying to make sure you're perfect and those types of things. Um, they're not they 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 turn you from an understanding of God's grace, and God's grace is also revealed to you through relationships with other people. Okay, but. In any case, when John returned to Antioch after six years of monastic um, life, he was ordained as a deacon. As such, he began preaching. And this is the first time we hear that he's preaching, and soon his fame was widespread throughout the Greek-speaking church. So this will what will end up being the Greek Orthodox Church. And um, he's preaching, and all of a sudden people are aware of his preaching because he's really, really good, all right? Um, now, it's interesting. He's been away for all this time, and he comes back, and he starts preaching to others, and it is clear that he is extremely gifted. Now, here, so, okay, so we're going to get into this time period where he finds himself as the bishop of Constantinople, and it's a little, it's a little crazy, all right? It's a little crazy. So in 397, I apologize, first time I'm giving you a date. In 397 AD, um, the Bishop of Constantinople leaves and the seat or um, the, 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 the position is left vacant. Um, and the emperor ordered that John be taken to the capital city, which was Constantinople at that time, um, and to occupy the prestigious position. So he reaches out and says, I want this guy to be there. Now, this is something that happened from time to time. It wasn't like now where it was just, you you know, people are putting in applications and putting in resumes for, oh, that's a great job. I want to be the bishop of Constantinople. This was the, the city, okay? This was New York. This was L.A., okay? This was, this, this was the city of that time, all right? And of this empire, it's a capital city. 
And the emperor of the capital city, and who also, you know, resided in Constantinople, he says, I want the best preacher. I want, I want, I want him here. So he orders him to come to Constantinople from Antioch. All right. Um, so again, it's not sometimes it's just, well, this is who's here or this is who we, we want to be in this position. But in these larger kind of seats, um, sometimes the guys didn't even have a choice. Well, this is what was so crazy. So John had been so uh, gotten famous from in being in Antioch that there was concern that if the people in Antioch heard that the emperor was was forcing him out of Antioch to be in Constantinople as the bishop, they thought Antioch would riot, like literally tear stuff down and and throw stuff around and hurt people and all that stuff. That's the kind of um, the kind of influence that John had, um, as we see through his preaching. Remember the golden mouth. That's what his last name means. Um, now, what we see is that once once he does decide to go, and they do all these kind of things to try to get him there. And in fact, one of the ways they get him there is they they actually ask him instead of saying, "John." come to Constantinople, they ask him to preach in a town just outside of Constantinople. And then once he's done preaching, they literally kidnap him, um, the emperor's men, and they throw him into this this carriage, and they take him to Constantinople. And this was kind of like their way of um, making it so it's not like they just grab him out of Antioch and take him to Constantinople. So nothing like being kidnapped because you're so good at something to be taken to where um, you're going to work, which also ends up being um, the most influential place, one of the most influential places in the world. But once he's there, um, his first task in his mind was to reform the life of the clergy, and the clergy are so not going to be excited about this. But he decides this is what he wants to do. And, and, and being the bishop of Constantinople, he has an incredible amount of power. Um, he is their boss, all right? So he's going to implement some things that are not going to be, so, not going to be super fun. So some priests who claimed to be celibate, for example, this is some of the stuff he was dealing with. Some priests who claimed to be celibate, on occasion, um, what they would do is they would have these women in their homes um, who would uh, gratify them sexually. And this is the creepiest of names. Like if this was a movie title, this would be the creepiest of names. But they were called spiritual sisters. So I'm just laughing because it's creepy. Not that it's a good thing, or not that I'm not. I'm not laughing because these women are like are not being taken advantage of. They they clearly are. Um, But some of these priests, what they would do, they they take. Well, you know, they should be celibate. They're supposed to be celibate, and they're they're building harems within their homes and they're like you know it's fine i'll call them we'll call them spiritual sisters no no one will think the wiser right everybody knew what was going on which is partly why john said we need to fix this because none of this is really being done in secret um other clergymen had become super rich and lived with much luxury um and they they 
they built their accounts through the, the commerce of this amazing, huge, great city of Constantinople. Um, the finances of the church were in shambles, partly because the parishioners uh, were giving and the clergy were taking it for themselves. Uh, and the care of the flock was largely unattended. So John steps into a situation where he's leading the most powerful, one of those powerful churches, churches being the church of Constantinople. He's kidnapped and he's made to be in charge of this church. And what we find is that this church is scandalous sexually. They are stealing all kinds of money, and the people are not being taken care of. And John, being John, takes all those issues on head on. All those issues on head on. Um, he ordered, he, this, so this guy starts laying it down, he ordered that the spiritual sisters move out of the priest's homes and that the latter lead in a, a, a celibate life which is what they're supposed to be doing anyway, but can you imagine all, can you imagine all of these priests? There's many. There wasn't just like one priest for this area. Um, so imagine there's, there's, there's all these priests, and they've all got all these, you know, basically um, harems, prostitutes, women just that are just living off their luxury. They're having sex with them. John steps on the scene, and he says, here's what we're going to do, all right? All the spiritual sisters, out. All y'all get out. All y'all get out. <laughs> and then enforces it. I mean, I, the guy must have been one of the most hated men in about two minutes ever to take on a job. Now, the church finances were placed under a system of detailed scrutiny. So he said, okay, what we're going to do is um, we're going to make sure we know where every inkling of money goes, which immediately makes it impossible for the priest and the clergy to steal money without John knowing. Again, not a super popular move. The luxury items that adorned the priest's palace were sold in order to feed the hungry. Come on now. This guy, I mean this guy. <laughs> so so not only is he taking their, their girls, uh, not only is he making it so that they can't get any more income from how, where they were, so now what they're going to do about that, um, he also takes all of their stuff. The priest takes all their stuff. He sells it, and he gives the money to the hung the hungry in Constantinople, which to to us seems like a very reasonable thing to do, a cool thing. But imagine if you are a priest and you have these spiritual sisters, you have a steady income from the church, and on top of that, you've amassed some nice stuff, and all of a sudden. No more girls, no more income, no more stuff. And the clergy received orders from him to open the churches at such times that were convenient not only for the wealthy, but also for those who had to work at unopportune times. All right, now this one is an important one. Remember, because he comes in, he sees not only the scandalous stuff that's happening with the priests, he sees the people are not being taken care of, not being taken care of. So what was happening here is the priests were opening the churches in times 
where wealthy people could come to church. They'd figure out when can the wealthy people come to church, and that's when they would open up the doors of the church. And partly that was because that's where the income would come from, which would also flow into their homes, their girlfriends, and they could buy stuff. Okay, so it was a, just a, a wheel of evil that was taking place. But John says, look, it's, it's, not, it's not okay. Um, we need to make sure the doors of the church are essentially open whenever people need to come in. Doesn't matter what they do, doesn't matter, like whenever they need to come in. I actually saw, um, there's a church in Detroit area. I used to live up in Detroit area. And there's a church that they, they, were, they were in an area where there were a lot of people they, in the, um, the car industry that were working first, second, and third shifts, okay? Um, and they made a point to have services available on the weekend on all times where people can come. So if you if you have to work all weekend, you can come to church during the week. We're going to have a church service for you. If you have to work every morning, then we're going to have something in the evening. If you work, you know, a, a shift where you can you're always going to be t- there's always going to be something happening in the evening, we're going to do something in the morning. And I thought that was really cool. And essentially that's what he's telling them to do. Um, Now, obviously, all these measures gained him both respect of many and a lot of people hated him for real. Okay, of course. Why would they not? Um, But such a reformation cannot be limited to just the clergy. He can't stop just there. And the thing about this is it's the speed at which he went after the clergy. Now, what we're going to see is he's going to begin to, and we'll see in part two, he's going to begin to go into the the, uh, the laity or the people who are not priests, and he's going to start talking to them about this stuff too, which talk about being hated. I mean, he's going to clear some seats out, okay, in some of these churches that he preaches in. But he goes at a slower pace because there's an accountability for the clergy and the priests and the pastors, and, and, and he... He doesn't take any time with that. He walks in, he's like, this is not how it should be, so we're done with that stuff. But with the people, we're going to see it's going to be a little bit slower of a, of, a pro, of a process. But it can't be limited to only the clergy. That's what his, you know. It, it was necessary that the laity, so the people who weren't pastors, also be called to lead lives more in accordance with the gospel mandates. Um, so, therefore... Uh, the golden mouth preacher thundered from the pulpit. He was not a shy. He was not a guy in in the uh, um, in the descriptions of him that he was just suggesting things from the pulpit, sitting on a stool. Go ahead and sit down, everybody. Let's uh, let me just tell you a little bit what's on my heart. Instead, he had that Charles Spurgeon in your face. This is what needs to happen. This is not an argument. This is in scripture. This is how it's going to be. All right, that's kind of how he was. And he says this to the laity, the people who are not pastors, and this, can you imagine this? I mean, seriously, can you imagine this coming from the pulpit? Now, the gold bit on your horse, the gold circlet on the wrist of your slave, the gilding on your shoes mean that you are robbing the orphan and starving the widow. Ouch. When you have passed away, each passerby who looks upon your great mansion will say, How many tears did it take to build that mansion? 
How many orphans were stripped? How many widows were wronged? How many laborers deprived of their honest wages? Even death itself will not deliver you from your accusers. Oh my goodness. John Christostom, come on now. I mean, come on. You know what? I'm going to read that again because that's a direct quote and it's insane. All right. A direct quote and it's insane. And and if you don't like me reading it again, I'm getting all, all I feel like I'm having more um, passion because of this guy. But man, I can't, the courage, the courage to come in and see the church with the sexual immorality and the love of money and the the discord against people, the, 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 just the, the, all of that stuff. And he just rips the clergy, just rips them down and said, this is what it means to be a man of the word or a woman of the word. And then he doesn't stop there. He could have stopped there. He could have said, all right, now everybody, let's do what we're supposed to do. Let's see how this goes. Let's preach some softies. Okay, let's do some softball underhand uh, sermons and the people will get it. But no, he steps up and right away, he just got there. He first addresses the clergy and then he comes to the people and he says, this is not going to be how it will be. And if you don't like it, you called the wrong guy up here. And what we're going to see in part two, um, the forces that kidnapped him and brought him up here start to think to themselves uh you know maybe we uh you know might have gotten ourselves into something here but let me read this quote again so this is what he says this is how this is in a sermon he preaches this all right um the gold bit on your horse the gold circlet on your wrist on the wrist of your slave the gilding on your shoes mean that you are robbing the orphan and starving the widow when you have passed away, so literally when you straight up, when you die, he says, when you have passed away, each passerby who looks upon your great mansion will say this, how many tears did it take to build that mansion? How many orphans were stripped? How many widows were wronged? How many laborers deprived of their honest wages? And he says this, just the dagger, even death will not deliver you from your accusers. Even death will not deliver you from your accusers. There's a way to live. There's a way to interact with people. There's a way to, um, and he's going to get into all this stuff. Like he's, he's what what's going to happen with him is I mentioned those things, those themes of how we interact with people, whether that be taking advantage of people, uh, relationships, sexual relationships, marriage relationships, family relationships, um, how we deal with uh, um, money and how we get our money and how we give our money and then possessions, which is kind of like money, but it's he separates that out. Those three things he's going to preach about in detail, in detail. Um, it's almost like he just brings destruction to how things were and then begins to build it up. So John Christoston, all right, John Christoston, golden mouth, preacher, um, powerhouse. Some of these guys, I, I, it makes me sad that we can't, I'm, this might sound stupid, but I would love to have a recording. I can get on YouTube and find all these preachers preaching 
here now, um, I would love to hear John Christoston preach, like just hear his voice. Uh, maybe when I get to heaven, you know, he'll he probably will be distracted by you know worshiping God. But I would love to hear him preach this stuff. And I'm gonna tell you right now, um, that's you know I gave you a little bit who he is and what he's about and all that, but. Next time we get together for part two, I am just telling you right now, um, I mean, if you have a weak stomach, meaning you don't want to be challenged yourself, don't listen to the next one. Just don't. Don't listen to the next one and then send me emails about how you're all uncomfortable because I'm, I'm trying to just walk through his life. But there are so many things that we can learn. So with that said, that's our time this evening. I hope you enjoyed uh, learning the first part. And, you know, there's always a million more things you can learn about these people, but hopefully you learned a lot just in this little time that we had together. And I pray, my prayer for, I mean, for myself, pray for myself. I I, I hope that, you know, the challenge is that, I, I, I hope I'm never in a spot where, um, uh, a man like John Christoston can can like walk in and just crush me on these very obvious sins and uh, um, missteps. But we all fall into those things at some point. Um, I hope that you have a good month or two. Um, hopefully we get together next month. Um, again, thank you for helping us hit that 4,000 download number. And um, yeah, if you need anything email us at church.ahistory at gmail.com. All right, have a great evening. Mm-hmm.